Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is urban horror, and we're joined by guest Preston Fossil. As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Fossil's book, Beasts of 42nd Street, the OG or the requel Candyman, or the movie Cairo, then turn back now. But with all of that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Preston, thank you so much for joining us. How the hell are you doing today? I'm great, and thanks for having me. Of course. Let's start the episode off just kind of introducing you to anybody that isn't familiar with you. What's your niche in the horror community? What do you do? What do you create? Who are you? <laughs> uh, so I'm a uh, author and journalist. I uh, got my start uh, writing for Rumorg Magazine and contributed to several other horror publications over the years, uh, Fangoria, Scream, uh, and then made the transition into fiction writing. Uh, I published my first novel, Our Lady of the Inferno, in 2016. And Beasts of 42nd Street is my fourth book now. And I've got a fifth book coming out this October uh, called Necessary Death, which is a nonfiction book that's coming out through HCI via Simon & Schuster. Ooh, okay. The last question of the episode is usually, what do you have coming up? So I want to hold that thought until then but i do want to hear about the nonfiction book i guess i'll start off by saying in preparation for this episode i went through and listened to the dead headspace episode that you were on recently you did a really cool job talking about your history with horror your background kind of growing up getting into all of this stuff what drew you to 42nd street as a topic for a novel I don't want to make you rehash all of that here, but just a quick plug for that podcast, um, Dead Headspace, Preston's episode on there. It's fascinating. It is well worth turning me off for a little while. And, <laughs> but I'll kick us off with just the the topic of the day, urban horror. You have a book out called Beasts of 42nd Street that very much dives into just the nitty gritty underbelly of city life. Um, so I think you're a really cool guest to have on for this episode. You've clearly got a good handle on what makes all of this creepy and scary and just like nauseating in a lot of cases. Um, but I want to pin down what exactly we're talking about first, because when we started talking about this episode, my impression was we were talking about urban horror. So I was just thinking the setting, the horror that takes place in a city, horror that takes place in a place where you are claustrophobically surrounded by people. But the more that I rewatched these movies and the more that I got into your book, I realized that could also have been talking about urban legends um, because all of these pieces delve into that aspect of things also. So in your mind, when we say we're talking about urban horror today, which direction are you pulling us? I'll, I'll follow you down whatever rabbit hole today. <laughs> For me, it was the setting because I think that urban horror is very difficult to do well. And I think it can be done well. 
but that a lot of people either take the swing and a miss or they don't even try to take the swing in the first place because isolation is such a great element for a horror story. And even earlier today, I was thinking to myself about my favorite horror movies and The Shining, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Thing, isolation and being cut off from the rest of the world is such an element in the scare factor there. And if you're alone and you're in the middle of nowhere, that enhances this sense of helplessness. But if you're in a city and you're surrounded by people, maybe you're afraid of more human and grounded things. You're afraid you're going to get mugged. You're afraid you're going to get shot. You're afraid that somebody's not going to be paying attention and run a red light and hit you crossing the street. But you're not necessarily afraid of the the cannibal clan that lives in the abandoned house down at the end of the dirt roads. You're maybe not necessarily afraid of somebody going completely bonkers and coming after you because you can call the cops or you can, you know, run to the neighbors for help. Uh, you know, in a lot of scenarios, Jack Torrance's rampage would have just ended with him getting shot by the cops. Uh, but you're alone with him in a haunted hotel. So urban horror to me is fascinating because it's such fertile ground for a horror setting, but difficult to pull off and something that so few people actually take a shot at. That being said, I think that's bringing up the urban legend aspect of Candyman is interesting because urban legend was a jumping off point for beasts of 42nd street and i can circle back around to that at the appropriate point but i think they're both interesting perspectives to take on the episode yeah okay so i like this then because uh in season one we had an episode with alfred alley talking about the cabin in the woods as a setting and it feels like it's going to be the polar opposite of what this conversation is about to turn into so I'm I'm excited to hit both sides of this coin. Um, you you mentioned a couple of times there that there are, it's difficult to do this well, and I know I've got one talking point I want to dive into with that. Um, I I kind of previewed this with you a little bit, but I want to hear from you first. What are those difficult things to land uh, when you're creating a story in this sort of an environment? It's an inherently safer and more resourceful environment for your characters. You know, say, for example, going back to the, the Shining analogy a moment ago, your apartment building is haunted and your husband falls under the sway of malevolent ghosts. Maybe you can call the cops. Uh, maybe you can go to somebody else in your apartment building. Maybe you can run next door to a neighbor. You've got more potential avenues of escape. You've got more potential allies in your immediate surroundings. Uh, you have much easier access to hospitals, uh, potentially law enforcement, depending on your circumstances and the circumstances of the story. Uh, if somebody's injured, then, you know, maybe it's not necessarily a life and death situation because you can call 911. But you take somebody out of the city and you put them into some place that's completely isolated. And all of a sudden, a lot of those things stop being options. So so in a good urban horror story you you need to make sure that if those options are available they're they're scary they're like finding some way to restrict those options i guess yes and also having some kind of threat that can nullify potential aid uh like the the exorcist isn't quite urban horror i don't know if you would necessarily consider that suburban urban uh but you know you're up against demonic forces and i think that the exorcist is one of the best what i call 
open horror movies in that the characters do have such access to and interaction with the world at large, but still find themselves up against something that they can't reason with and can't take out or control through scientific or modern modern means. And and even in The Exorcist, eventually it all gets isolated to that bedroom. Uh, that's something that I think is really great there is that it does take place in this world at large, but that world gets smaller and smaller over the course of the story until we're no longer in the DC area. And that that, that world gets smaller and smaller over the course of the movie until we are just in this bedroom. So if you're you're going to do an urban horror story, you need to make sure that you're dealing with threats that can't just be easily solved with a phone call or a trip to the neighbors or a uh you know something in your everyday life i like that and i really like using the exorcist as a lens for it too because you're right in the first like however much of that movie they have any resource they want available to them you want police okay you get police they're not going to help you want an exorcist here have two they're not going to help and it really helps drive the stakes up when even when you have all these resources available, your cell phone works in this movie. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter. The big bad thing is still coming after you. I, I think it's also important, like you're saying, with the sense of isolation, that you earn that sense of isolation a little bit. Uh, so the movie that I wanted to rag on just a little bit, and side note, this is a very positive podcast, but Scream 6 fell very flat for me because they sold it as an urban horror movie and then just never delivered on that promise there there were like two scenes in the whole movie where there were crowds of people that they were having to navigate and otherwise they left the party and all of a sudden the street's completely empty and they're isolated um they're in there they're in their apartment and like screaming bloody murder and nobody's coming to check on them apparently this entire block is abandoned it's just like you, there, there's just nothing going on here so using that setting but making it feel full is so critical for this and if we're jumping the gun a little bit i feel like that's something you did very well in beasts of 42nd street is just making sure that it feels like this really dense lived in world um that your story is taking place in was that something that you were trying to be conscious of through the writing of the book do you have any tips or tricks for how to make a world feel more well-rounded so much research went into that book i think that i probably spent more time researching it than i actually did writing it because i wanted somebody who lived in new york city circa 1977 to pick that book up and recognize where Andy Lou is at any given point and to say, okay, that's this place, that's this place. The, uh, the Colossus is a stand in for the old Roxy theater. Uh, the, uh, the punk club is a stand in for CBGB. And uh, I just wanted to pay as much attention to atmosphere as possible in order to enhance that sense of reality and to bring the reader into this world. And uh, you asked before about my niche, I tend to write stories set against the backdrop of 42nd Street. And something that I feel is really great about that is you sort of get the best of both worlds because you've got the big city, you've got this urban environment, but 42nd Street ran on subculture. And you were dealing with a time and place that despite its location in New York City, 
perhaps didn't have as readily available access to a lot of those resources that we talked about before. Uh, this is an incredibly vice-ridden scene. These were not people who could just go pick up the phone and call the police if they were up against some kind of issue. Uh, this was a scene that ran on organized crime. This was a scene that attracted a lot of who were considered the dregs of society at that time and provided them the safe space. Uh, the uh, the show Pose on FX really does a, a great job of showing you know some of the people who would have been gravitating around this place. And so you're in the city but you're isolated from the city at the same time. And that's what I think makes 42nd Street such fertile ground for horror and thriller. Do we want to scrap the blueprint a little bit and just really dive into 42nd Street here and we'll come back to Candyman and we'll come back to Pulse uh, kind of second and third? It's your podcast, however you want to do it. <laughs> Let's do it. We've already got this ball rolling a little bit. So um, maybe... Maybe with the Cliff Notes version here, because I've already plugged Deadhead Space. You, you've got a really good explanation of 42nd Street and all the intricacies of it there. Um, but what's what is 42nd Street in a nutshell? Um, and then we'll use that to kind of build into Andy Lou's story some. So 42nd Street has gone through a lot of really interesting evolutions throughout New York's history. Uh, way back in the day, this was an area where there were a lot of burlesque houses. And then uh, the, the street went through a kind of mini gentrification uh, around the World War II era. And they built all of these epic movie theaters. They called them the movie palaces. And if you can find photos of these things, they were like these really amazing architectural feats. They were movie theaters that looked more like opera houses. And they really geared these places towards the returning World War II veterans, their growing families, and this new generation of prosperity emerging in the post-war era. And this was, you know, the the height of Hollywood glamour, going to the movies in a suit and tie, uh, women in fine dresses after church on Sundays, going to watch Casablanca, going to watch, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock movies in the 50s. And then television rolls around and television just absolutely fucks 42nd Street because the market completely drops out of the bottom of this luxury movie theater going experience, because now you can stay home and they're, they're coming out with the first made for TV movies. You've got, I love Lucy being broadcast directly into your living room in prime time. Why take the trouble to walk the streets of the city when you've got entertainment right here in front of you. And so in order to survive the theaters on 42nd street to start to show the stuff that they won't allow on television and this is really where exploitation cinema gets its second life. Uh, you know, there have always been movies around like Reefer Madness and, uh, oh, there's another one that's like Reefer Madness, but it's a cocaine scare film. But, you know, there were there was this generation of exploitation movies in the 1930s and 40s that uh, kind of fell by the wayside at the uh, height of this Hollywood glamour. Exploitation kind of became more domesticized with Roger Corman, uh, juvenile delinquent movies. But now with 42nd Street's 
specifically and movie theaters more broadly facing this crisis of television, they've got to take things a little edgier and a little bit more extreme. And this is really here in the early 60s where we start to see the birth of exploitation cinema and grindhouse cinema as we think of it now. Uh, That's, you know, eventually leads to stuff like Switchblade Sisters and Candy Snatchers and much more for lack of a better word, puerile and exploitative fare. You know, you can't see boobs on your television set at home. You maybe can't see a dude get his head blown off with a shotgun on your TV set at home, but you can on 42nd Street. And so the theaters on 42nd Street survive. And in the process of surviving, they start to attract a different elements because now it's no longer the square John crowd. It's no longer, you know, nice families going to see the new Doris Day Rock Hudson movie. Now it's somebody who does want to see somebody get their head blasted off with a shotgun. And they really start to diversify the types of movies that are being shown there too in order to cast this wide net and attract people who may not feel welcome in other environs. They start to show queer cinema. They start to show uh, cinema by African-American directors who maybe can't get play in other places. And as a result of this, 42nd Street becomes this sort of catch-all for people who don't feel quite at home in other parts of the world. You know, I mentioned Pose before. 42nd Street was a major hub of the drag and queer community in the 1970s and 80s. And so 42nd Street sort of transforms into what I've always lovingly called this kingdom of the damned, where all of these subcultures and all of these groups of people, all of these demographics who don't have another place to go can drift to 42nd Street. Uh, but as is often the case when you're dealing with uh, people who have to kind of live on the periphery of society, uh, a criminal element got involved as well. Uh, you know, lots of the... Uh, the, the queer people hanging around 42nd Street, for example, ended up gravitating into sex work because they had been kicked out of their homes. They were homeless. They needed to survive. And so there was a tremendous uh, prostitution scene there. The mafia moved in. Drugs became a major element to 42nd Street. And so eventually, by the time you reach my story, and especially by the time you reach the 80s and finally the very early 90s when 42nd Street went under, uh, it was... This, this this hub of a vice and drugs, but also this weird safe space for a lot of people, which is this dichotomy that's always really fascinated me. And sort of the, the, the final weird transformation that occurred to 42nd Street is, you know, I've just gotten done describing all of this to you, these, these movie theaters that were showing exploitation cinema. There was a lot of live sex shows, strip clubs, adult bookstores, video arcades there. And all of that's gone now. That all gets wiped out in the gentrification campaigns of the 80s and 90s. And back in 2019, I won a, an award for my first book for Lady of the Inferno, which is also about 42nd Street. And I got to go up to New York to collect it. And I went and I visited 42nd Street. And the Roxy Theater, which I based the Colossus Theater on, which appears in Beast of 42nd Street and Our Lady of the Inferno, is now Ripley's Believe It or Not in Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. And the great thing, and where I'll stop this this long rambling explanation, is there's one last grindhouse theater surviving, and it's the Lyric, and they were showing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that's, okay, that's a whole nother angle on this setting that we haven't broken into yet, is that gentrification that 
that adoption of these areas by different groups over the course of time and just seeing different cultural, different um, socioeconomic influences pushing and pulling on one area. So I live, I lived in Atlanta. Now I live near Atlanta, but whatever. Um, Atlanta is a really good example of that too, just because it's such an unplanned city. As you drive around it, you'll be driving down one street and it is it, it is a very specific vibe. And then you turn one corner and it is totally different. Like everything is shifted as you just like go past a tree. Cities are crazy as these like fast moving microcosms. With Beast of 42nd Street, you've got it placed in this point of time where, how did you call it? The the. I know on the back of the book, I called it the height of its decadence and depravity. Yeah, that'll work. Um, the, at the height of its decadence and depravity, you, you've you got this, this setting. And one, I just want to applaud the way that you handle your descriptions in the book. The way that just the, this is an awful word for this, but icky feeling of this place, the way that it just seeps under your skin every single page was weirdly beautiful in this Barker-esque way. He is one of the uh, the best other people I can think of that sets an atmosphere in a similar way that you do. So that's amazing. And then you have a character that you've mentioned a couple of times now, Andy Liu, that kind of acts as a vehicle for all of this. We get these really depraved vibes and this really depraved setting and then we get just the kingpin of depravity uh, to guide us through this story so where did andy lou come from in your mind um is, is he was he based off of anything or is he just the living embodiment of 42nd street or who is this guy and can you give us a little taste of what his story is here yeah, so Andy Liu is a theater projectionist, and a very interesting thing that I learned over the course of researching this book is there used to be a theater projectionist's union, and I'm not certain that there still is, but you could make a living working as a movie theater projectionist if you're part of the union and uh, negotiates a livable salary for yourself. And so I really thought that was fascinating for there to be a character in a book that's so heavily about cinema who works as a full-time professional theater projectionist. Uh, when I first came up with him, I myself was working as an obviously non-union movie theater projectionist. I was making, I want to say, what was the minimum wage at that time? I think it might have still been six seventy-five. I think it was before the bump. But, uh, you know, I, I was not making a living wage. I was going to college and working as a uh, movie theater projectionist in Houston. And I uh, I felt a lot of simpatico there because I was reading about 42nd Street, researching it. Uh, this was years and years ago. Andy actually started life as a character in short stories that I would submit to my college's uh, campus literary magazine. And so even though this is a more recent book, he's one of my earliest literary creations. And Everybody on 42nd Street knew a guy like Andy Liu. And something that you brought up a moment ago is just a really brilliant observation. These guys who were the embodiment of a 42nd Street, because it was in a lot of ways a very desperate environment. Uh, when you when you read about the fall of 42nd Street, uh, gentrification certainly helped to deliver a death blow, but also the, the AIDS epidemic, uh, the crack epidemic also dealt their own death blows to 42nd Street. Things had just become really untenable there as a place to live. 
and Andy is kind of walking desperation. And this person who is driven by both a desire for something more, because I think it was, it was Oscar Wilde who said that we're all lying in the gutter, but some of us are staring at the stars. And that was kind of a inspiration point for Andy Lewis, that he is at once this absolutely vile human being, but he also has an appreciation for beauty and art and is searching for something more. And talking to people who had lived on 42nd Street, who had been there back in the day, they all knew somebody like this. And so in a certain way, he's an amalgamation of all those people. He is the guy that you would have known if you hung around 42nd Street. Uh, I also saw in him sort of my own worst case scenario uh, at the time that I first conceptualized Andy Lee when I was working as the theater projectionist was not a great time in my life. Uh, my mother was in the hospital with leukemia. My brother had just moved out of the house uh, for, for things that he had to take care of. Uh, we had just moved. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was having difficulty meeting new people. I'd just gone through a, a mutual breakup that was you know necessary, but sad. You know, it was one of these cases where we realized we just weren't right for one another and weren't going to make one another happy if we stayed in a relationship. And so I was myself going back to something we talked about earlier, just complete isolation and a recurring theme in my attempts to keep and maintain relationships at that time. And this is going back to 2005, 2006, before I feel like horror kind of got rehabilitated in the media. Uh, people were really put off by how much I liked horror stuff. And I would you know, be talking to somebody feeling like I was getting a good uh, relationship going with them, be that romance or just a friendship or just meeting new people at school. And then it would come up and I'd start talking about horror stuff and everything I knew about horror and how much I enjoyed horror. And this was always something really off-putting to people. And I remember coming home one night from that movie theater. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, my dad's asleep. I'm the only other person in the house. I've like gone to school that day and then gone to work. And, you know, probably not said anything to people other than, you know, theater six on the left while helping take tickets in between starting the projector. And I had dropped it down to like 170 pounds and I'm sitting there alone in the room where I've got all my movies and I'm looking at my shelves and virtually everything there is a horror movie. And I'm thinking to myself, this is why you're alone and what the hell are you going to become? And kind of my worst case scenario that I produced from that was Andy. Uh, third point of inspiration, I knew my own Andy. Uh, my brother and I went to high school with a guy who was the stereotypical, like, breaks bad too hard a kid. Uh, I don't know if this is somebody that everybody knows in their lives. I don't know how unique this was, but he was the straight A student. He was president of language clubs, uh, you know, really popular, really well liked, really academically gifted. And it was all because of this pressure his parents put on him. And this poor guy's adolescence was a pressure cooker where they just kept turning it up. It was you will succeed. You will be the best. You will go to a good college straight out of high school. You will be getting, you know, five-figure income straight out of high school. And and he did. He, he graduated a year before my brother and I uh, got a five-figure job out of high school, 
working for some kind of tech company. He was doing something with IT. I can't remember. And then he just cracked and he cracked bad. And he went from, you know, square John middle America. to he turned his apartment into a eighties style punk squat, uh, dyed his hair black, started dressing like a, you know, Sid vicious era punk rocker, uh, Tulsa at the time had a big underground punk scene and going back to something I mentioned earlier a lot of people in it were LGBT and had been disenfranchised by their families because of that and were homeless and this guy kind of turned his apartment into like a place where they could all crash and have a safe place to be but we're talking a 18 year old kid providing a place for like 15 and 16 year old kids and in some cases even people in their 20s just hang out uh, drugs very much got involved and he reached a point where he told them, you know, I can no longer pay to support all of you staying here. And somebody asked him, well, will you accept morphine as payment for staying here? Because they had some kind of hookup at a hospital. And he ended up getting hooked on morphine, like Andy in the book, and just his life just like absolutely torpedoed. And the description of Andy's apartment is actually a significantly toned down version of what this guy's apartment actually ended up looking like because in my original draft of this, I described what his place actually looked like. And I was like, nobody's going to believe that anybody would actually live somewhere that has garbage all over the floor and like rats nests all over the floor. And like, you know, a kitchen sink filled with plates that haven't been cleaned for weeks at a time. And so I actually had to, to tone that down. And, uh, Andy is the the, the three-way combination of those factors. Um, let me start by thanking you for opening up so much about that. I know like digging into past like that sometimes can be hard. So thank you. Um, two, that was toned down? Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, yeah. Oh, my God. The, apartment is what? <laughs> the very last time I went there, because before I left Tulsa, I had to go see him one last time, say goodbye. And it was shortly before he got evicted. There were holes punched in the walls that they had taken uh, blocks of styrofoam from like styrofoam coolers and tried to like seal the holes in the walls. And at a certain point, because the lease was paid separately from the water bill, the water had gotten shut off and they continued using the toilet. And when the toilet no longer became an option, they had begun using the bathtub in the sink. And when somebody complained that they were sleeping in the bathtub, they started going to the gas station around the corner and stealing the plastic like big gull cups and bringing them back and using those as portable toilets that were then being left around the apartments until they filled up. And when they filled up, they were sticking the lids on them and then going out and throwing them onto the roof of the building at night. I don't have any approach. <laughs> uh, holy shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So when you read it in the book, it gets even worse. It's interesting that the whole pitch of this place is kind of a safe space for this disenfranchised LGBTQ community to kind of come together. And then it turns into this horror show, but it started with that 
uh, I guess, well-intentioned premise. It's just interesting that in an in this setting, in these cities, maybe you don't know a place just like this, but there are all of these different pockets of the cities that uh, kind of start out as well-intentioned ideas and then get bastardized or get, get distorted and twisted. Um, and it sounds like 42nd Street is very similar to this. We've got this same idea with the apartment. I think this is a good point to spin into Candyman a little bit because it starts dealing with this some, especially in the requel. But um, with Candyman, I guess if anybody hasn't seen Candyman, can you set the stage for them with what is the premise of we can hit these movies one at a time or we can kind of hit them at all at once, whatever you prefer. But what what's the basic idea with the Candyman movies? What are we diving into here? So uh, Candy Ban is a movie based on a Clive Barker story called The Forbidden. And they uh, they did something really great with it. The original story is about uh, about uh, London council housing. And they moved it to what's essentially the American analog to that, which would be housing projects in the inner city. And the first movie is about a grad student who is researching inner city urban legend. And she stumbles across the urban legend of Candyman, who is this malign presence who is supposed to stalk the Cabrini Green housing projects, which really were housing projects based in Chicago. And he is a hook-handed man who will appear in your mirror and kill you if you decide to summon him by saying his name five times. He's this sort of inner city take on the Bloody Mary urban legend. Uh, and it's really interesting in the way that it delves into the, the perpetuation of mythos in certain areas and what urban legends are and the kind of function that they serve in society. And then also how this dovetails with the culture of the housing project at the time. Uh, and then in the requel that we got a couple of years ago, we go back to Cabrini Green decades later and the area has now been gentrified. And the movie is this examination of the intersection of urban legend, gentrification, and the uh, racial violence, especially over the past uh, couple of decades. So Cabrini Green was kind of where my head was at when I was trying to make that connection here with depending on uh, A, what movie we're talking about, so what time period we're talking about, um, and then B, what what group of people you're a part of. Cabrini Green and Candyman himself kind of play as two very different concepts here. Candyman himself is this terrifying force that is going to come and kill you if you make the mistake of saying his name five times. But also, um, he's a little bit of a hero figure, especially in the requel at the very end. That, that comes in and that that stands up for the people that live here against all of the other forces that are trying to come in and screw all of this stuff up uh, and, and take what's theirs and um, everything else. It's just kind of interesting thinking about these two movies and how they play off of that same concept. And I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Am I am I totally off on the wrong road here? Or is there something to this? No, no, because it's interesting because I've always been confused by the execution of the Candyman character because he is the, the son of a freed slave mm -hmm. and he has a affair with a white woman and then he gets lynched for it and comes back as this vengeance wraith in the place where he was killed, where he was killed becomes Cabrini Green. And okay, so far it's this really potent symbol that this place where this this innocent man was brutally murdered becomes this housing project, which uh, 
you know, in the, in the second in the second film, the requel, they really, you know, kind of liken to a ghetto, this place where they have forced all of the black inhabitants of this area into this one place so that, you know, quote unquote, polite white society doesn't have to deal with them. But Candyman goes after the people who live in Cabrini Green. And he is this symbol of terror and fear for the people of the housing projects akin in a lot of ways to the way that white society is a symbol of fear for them. He just indiscriminately comes in and kills and preys on these people and, you know, puts them into the state of, of constant terror. And it's just always been a weird execution for me. They, they really lean into it in the second movie with him being very much symbolically linked with uh, violence against black men, police brutality, but even still in the requel, he's this guy who is terrorizing the black community. And it's it's a, always been a strange thing to me because you know I'm, I'm Jewish and it's like, okay, if I got killed in some kind of anti-Semitic hate crime and then I get to come back from the dead as like the super-powered ghoul, I'm not going to go start killing the members of my show. I'm going to go after the people who came after me. I'm going to go after the people who perpetuate the culture that came after me. And maybe because of my lived experiences, maybe because of who I am, there's there's an element of the narrative that I'm not seeing personally. Maybe I have a, a blind spot that I'm not picking up on. But I always thought Candyman would have been a cool kind of like supernatural vigilante character or at the very least have him as this force that's not perpetuating what was carried out against him. I... So my first thought, there's a weird thing about him being a, a reflection of that and then having to look in a mirror and saying his name to to, to summon him effectively. But then, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. It's it's a little bit contradictory the way that he's presented and wielded throughout the movies and then the way that he jumps in at the very end of the last one and like oh these cops are about to come after uh the, this this character and like the the corrupt police force and he's gonna go gut all of them even though um the the main character whose name i should really know but oh well uh the the main character in the back of the cop car is the one that says his name five times so he's gonna come after her right and it's gonna perpetuate the the same rules of violence that has been doing the whole movie oh no never mind he's coming after the cops now um it 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 seems a little bit odd in that um there's also a whole thing with in the first movie um what is the main lady's name in that movie oh virginia manson there she is um he he comes after her sort of um and the big the big line in the movie is be my victim but then she's the one person that he never directly attacks instead he kind of seduces her uh and and lures this white woman into um his story and brings her into this burning pyre at the very end of things to save the baby and in the act of doing that she burns herself alive and becomes this disfigured kind of reflection of him again um that that kind of gets the blame for supposedly trying to kill the baby if the requel is to be believed um like her story gets so bastardized and corrupted just like his did 
um, that she gets turned into this horrifying figure similar to him. So I'm wondering if maybe in Candyman's eyes, this has all been building up to something. Uh, I wonder if in Candyman's eyes, dying isn't really the victimhood. It's having your story corrupted. Because if he's going to make her the real victim here, doing that to her and putting her through the ringer and burning her alive and maiming her and totally upending her life uh, the way that he does was maybe arguably worse than the quick deaths that the other people got. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I've never quite been sure because I, I know he's like trying to reestablish his legends because he apparently derives his power from belief and by her coming in and saying he's an urban legend, this is somehow like sucking his power away. And so he's got to like really go on a killing spree now to really scare people. But then by, like you're saying, like framing it around her going into the pyre to rescue this baby, I think there's some kind of sacrificial elements involved, but it it never quite 100% made sense to me. Yeah. But it does get us back to this whole urban legend idea, right? Um, when we have so many people living in such a compacted space, um, these uh, orally passed around stories about Bloody Mary or Candyman or what name you, um, they kind of gain a life of their own. They become their own terrifying thing in the sense that nobody's really sure what's true about them or not. Nobody's really sure where the lines are drawn between fact and fiction. And is Candyman real? no, I can go upstairs and say Candyman in my mirror five times and nothing's going to pop out and kill me. Probably, but then where did the stories come from? Like, where did this little, like, inkling of terror, like, start? Um, there's got to be something back there. And not knowing where that line is is scary. And when a story gets passed around so much, like it's going to do in an area like this, um, I don't know, it kind of grows legs of its own. It grows a hook of its own. It comes after you. Woo! And tying this back to Beasts of 42nd Street, something that I think is very fun that you do in that book that's similar to Candyman, I guess, is there's a big mystery element surrounding Andy Lou and his brother um, that it's not clear at the outset exactly what happened with his brother. And he's got this video that he keeps watching um, and at least at the beginning, you think you know what the video is, but then the more times he watches it and the more times he talks about it, you're like, there's something else going on here. Um, and and it all kind of starts building its own mythos. So I, I was, I'm assuming you might have something to say to that with the, the building of a story in uh, such, such tight-knit communities and tight-knit spaces. Yeah, so I was really fascinated. 42nd Street was rife with urban legends because, of course, it was. And one of the bigger urban legends that was really popular on 42nd Street in the 1970s, there were two of them. One of them was, of course, that snuff films existed. And if you went to the right place on 42nd Street, you could see an actual snuff film or that, you know, somebody's brother's drug dealer's girlfriend had gone to a party where they showed a snuff film. Uh, and that that was fascinating to me because that has always been a very scary and very upsetting narrative device for me. Uh, one, because when I uh, was uh, just out of high school, the very first job I had uh, was as an intern for a police department evidence room. And so I, I've seen 
crime scene photos and the idea of that being recorded and recorded for entertainment purposes is just really upsetting. And then movies have always been a safe space to me. And I've always said that in a world where snuff films theoretically exist, they are the black masses of cinema. They're this corruption and perversion and inversion of something that should be good and pure and artistic. And then just at the time that I was coming up with these stories, I was seeing a lot of really great movies that involved snuff films. Uh, Tasis. I, oh, I'm, I'm going to lose more credit for this. That's not El Motivar. It's is it Amenabar, Amenabar. It's a really great Spanish film called Tasis about a uh, high school girl or a college girl who uncovers a snuff film hidden in her college's uh, library. Uh, I saw eight millimeter around this time, uh, but uh, that was just something that was, you know, firing up my imagination and snuff films on 42nd Street, this big thing. Now, the other urban legend that was drifting around 42nd Street and the one that's even more interesting and it often dovetailed with the snuff film urban legend was that some of the movies playing 42nd Street had literally been produced by the devil. And there was this fervent urban legend that certain directors were actually pseudonyms for Satan and that you could go into a grindhouse and watch a movie like Last House on Dead End Street. And when you see that name in the credits, Victor Janos, that is the devil. And you are actually seeing people die on screen, but in this narrativized format because it was made by Satan. And one of me just talking about where do these things come from, one of the practical, I guess that's the right word, one of the, the practical reasons that this arose was that a lot of people acting in these exploitation films either did not want their families to know they were doing it because the content was so seedy, or they had been blacklisted for bad behavior on set at another production. Or they were also porn performers and they didn't want to use their, their non-deforms. They came up with a pseudonym. But you go back and you watch a lot of these 70s era 42nd Street movies and almost every single name in the credits for a lot of these things are fake because they're all pseudonyms. And you try and track them down. It's like, okay, well, let's look up what other movies Victor Janos has made. Victor Janos hasn't made any other movies because Victor, Victor Janos is actually a dude named Roger Watkins. There is no Victor Janos. It's a guy named Roger Watkins, and he spent most of this movie's production on methamphetamine. <laughs> True story. Uh, and so the you know you can't find out who these people are. These movies are really uncannily real in a lot of ways, and uncannily really cheap and shitty looking in a lot of ways. And it's like you can't. And the the the, the print has been blown up from like sixteen to thirty five millimeter, and that's sort of fucked with the picture. And this print has also been shown up and down 42nd Street and it's all scratched up and the audio's bad and maybe the projectionist is on heroin. And so it's out of focus and you see this thing and it's this really off-putting, upsetting experience. And so, yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe the devil did produce this movie. And I just loved the idea of using these two urban legends that were so prevalent at the time of snuff film snuff films bouncing around 42nd Street and the devil making movies and the devil maybe being on 42nd Street. And those were two really big launch pads for the story. Nice. I I tried to make us pick urban stories or urban legends at the beginning, and we're just doing them both. Fuck it. <laughs> um Oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. Um, I've got to keep us going though, because we're getting close to the hour mark already. What the hell? 
Candyman, though, passing thought, we absolutely cannot talk about this film without talking about Tony Todd. So, Tony Todd, how much do you love him? <laughs> he deserved, he des- I, I really wish that they had done some different things with the narrative, because I really feel like Tony Todd could have, uh, you know, been another Robert England who has like eight Candyman films under his belt that 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 franchise got done wrong. And I mean, that's a uh, that's the subject for an entire podcast. But I mean, you know, they were sending the Candyman movies straight to video back in the 90s was like Hellraiser, Leprechaun and, and Candyman. And it's like, it's not bad company, but still that's that's what you're giving this guy. I mean, he's got such screen presence. He just sells every single scene he's in. I mean, he has such star quality, such star power, and he's such a sweet person, too. I got to meet him a couple of years ago, and he's just a very kind, very personable, very down-to-earth man. Uh, Somewhere in this world, probably lost now, there used to be a picture of he and I playing Nintendo together. Uh, Because I got to meet him to talk to him about a story. He had recorded voiceover work for a video game for, I want to say it was the Switch. I don't think it was the Wii U. But just such a sweet guy. It was cool to see him get to come back in this one. Uh, but yeah, he he really should have gotten more opportunities. And the franchise should have gotten more opportunities, if for no other reason than to give Tony Todd those opportunities. Okay, so I've got to go on a little bit of a tangent here. Do you remember what you were playing? And do you remember if you won? <laughs> it was some, if I recall correctly, it was some horror game. And I'm proud. Am I thinking about the right one? I'm going to look this up after we get off recording and realize I'm talking about the wrong one. But I want to say it's the sort of Silent Hill style puzzle game. And you're like in an insane artist's studio and you have to like solve puzzles and like walk through the studio. And I think that maybe Tony Todd is the voice of the artist. Layers of Fear 2 with Tony Todd in it. I'm sure like the the people that listen to this podcast are horror fans. Like I don't I don't think I have any uh anybody that doesn't deep dive into horror listening to this casually, but just in case, can you tell us the Tony Todd B story from Candyman? Cuz that's just always good to dive into. Uh with I, with the bees scene. I actually don't know this one. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to get the details wrong here, so apologies to everybody involved, but apparently when they were going to film the bees scene where he's just got those bees all in his mouth and he starts spitting them out, um, he managed to work out some sort of a contractual thing where he got like $1,000 for each bee sting. Uh, So that, that was the way they got him to film that without CGI or anything else like that. Like he actually just stuffs a bunch of bees in his mouth and is like, all right, let's do the scene. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> and because of my wife, I actually know there's a very safe way you can achieve that. You you can hide the queen and then use pheromones where they will not go into the, they will not go into an attack mode. She she's gonna lambast me for this because she's very interested in beekeeping, but there's a way that you can actually cover somebody with bees and the chance that they're going to get stung is virtually zero. Because when when bees go into attack mode, they like release there. There's this pheromone involved that provokes them, and if that's not at play, then they're incredibly docile because they know they die if they use that sting. Uh, so you you can actually pull that off, and you know have somebody walk away. Oh, sorry, sorry, Tony, you don't get a thousand dollars. Nobody got stung. 
unfortunately they were not that smart on the production i know he got stung repeatedly oh <laughs> so. they needed somebody who knew what they were doing right oh the beekeepers um okay so let's let's close the book on candy man because we're we are pushing our time limit already and we've still got to talk about cairo yes. uh, so first comment thank you for introducing me to this because i had not seen it before and it is unnerving as all get out. Um, so set the stage real quick. Uh, generally, what is this movie about? And then we'll start diving into why it's so creepy and how well it does urban horror. So it is set against the backdrop of early 2000s Japan. And we're really at kind of the dawn of the internet and the big technological boom that came about as a result of uh, the internet becoming widely available in people's homes. And in the realm of Cairo, the dead begin using the internet as a conduit to re-enter the world of the living. And you may have seen a super shitty remake of this starring Kristen Bell called Pulse that came out in around, say, 2006 that she herself has you know, kind of gone on the record and shit on. There's an entire plot line in this movie for getting Sarah Marshall where her character has starred in what's supposed to be Pulse and it's a running joke throughout the movie, like how bad it was. Uh, the remake is terrible, but the original is just so unnerving and it works so hard to create this sense of isolation in Japan, which... You think Tokyo, you don't think isolation. But the director just such does such a damn good job because one of the, the kind of conceits of the story is that meeting a ghost drives people into the state of suicidal despair. And Japan is slowly becoming depopulated throughout the film as more and more ghosts enter the realm of the living and drive people into these states of, of, of total desperation and they, they end up dying. And so throughout the movie, the world is getting depopulated. And it's just so spooky that as you watch this and you start to realize progressively there's less and less people in the movie. The balls associated with making a movie in the middle of Tokyo and having it center around the concept of isolation um, and loneliness is just insane because that could go so terribly wrong so quickly and just the expert way that it's handled here is a feat all to itself um i think it's really interesting watching the watching a movie that was set at the beginning of the internet being so scared of the internet because we've seen nowadays how the internet can get uh, you know bastardized all on its own and it's its own whole uh, own box of horrors at this point um totally unlike anything that could have been predicted back then but just the fears surrounding being able to log on and connect with anybody at any point but not really connect to anybody at any point is harrowing and then the ghosts start coming through um the standout scene for me was the lady at the end of the hallway um, that one of the main characters sees and she just looks like a normal person to start with, like anybody else that you saw in, in the in the movie up to that point. And But as soon as she starts to walk, I don't know how they manage that 
I don't know if that was just the actress leaning into the role really well. I don't know if they sped up or slowed down the tape or something, but whatever they did was the most unhuman thing imaginable. And it's amazing. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I live in Dallas and uh, earlier this year, we had the the big freeze that's kind of functionally shut down the city for a couple of days. And my brother happened to be here on a layover at uh, deep from going through DFW airport. And so my brother got stranded with us at our apartment for a couple of days. And uh, my wife and I showed this to him. And when we got to that part, my wife and I have seen this movie countless times. He had never seen it, but even still all three of us were just freaked the fuck out. And no matter how many times you see this thing, it's just, Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. But diving back into the actual subject at hand, not just talking about if you haven't seen the movie, go watch that stupid scene. Um, I mean, watch the whole movie, but especially that scene is like, I, I think it made um, Shudder's 101 Scariest Moments oh, nice. list. I, I think it's in there, um, but it's so worth it. Um, but anyhow, back to the topic at hand. So um, with urban horror, something interesting that you uh, turned me on to while we were talking about this was about the title itself. Um, can you tell us the story about what the title was in Japan and then it getting translated into English and then we can kind of spin that off into a conversation? Yeah, and so I'm not flexing here. I don't speak Japanese, but I first became aware of Cairo because I was part of an internet forum during the time this movie is set in the early 2000s that was dedicated to J-horror before it had really taken off over here stateside. And there were Japanese speakers on this forum and the original title in Japanese is Cairo and as the, it got translated into Pulse in the United States. And several people on the message board pointed out that this was not really correct. They like they kind of saw the logic in this, but that it has more of a sense of circuit and that it's this play on repetition, life and death, and then also like computer circuits. But apparently the U.S. distributor thought that would make it seem like too much of a sci-fi movie. They were afraid that people might think this was like something about hackers or something like Swordfish with Halle Berry, but that Pulse reads more horror-y. And so even though they said kind of spuriously, they can see where Pulse comes from, like Pulse coursing through the body and then also like an electromagnetic pulse but that if you really wanted to capture the essence of the original Japanese title, it would be properly circuit. So uh, what I like about the circuit title, especially is it tries to play into um, the, the interconnected like human web that we have. Like when you go out, um, you're, you're making connections with other people, those connections strengthen or weaken as you go through time. And uh, it, it's a core tenet of this movie too, is how these people that even when they're surrounded by people are surrounded by the internet, they're isolated, they're, they're withdrawing, they're, they're lonely as shit uh, to the point that it's killing some of them. It's killing most of them. What do you think there is to say here about internet horror where everybody's so accessible and not accessible at all at all at the same time 
versus urban horror where you're constantly surrounded by people but you are going to have like no connection with any of them except for like your group versus uh, again bringing it back to the beginning rural horror where literally nobody's around you um you, you're isolated you are on your own the cell phone doesn't work there's no connection i don't know what's the statement here what's the big the big thought i just think it's a fascinating movie in how it's uh how it really looks at how even though we do have the opportunity to connect to other people through the internet that for a lot of people they don't feel that sense of personal connection Th that was this was actually kind of a social issue movie when this came out in japan because a lot of what you're seeing in that movie was really happening at the time and it still continued to happen to this day there was a uh financial crisis in japan back in the 90s that sort of really devastated the up-and-coming graduating class generation and they're still struggling with the repercussions of this because of the low employment numbers a lot of members of that generation never ended up getting married and having families and it's been this cascade effect that's still impacting the country and we're kind of seeing it in cairo at this very pivotal moment where there were these really real concerns that people weren't able to form connections with one another and were super isolated and how the internet might be a way to help overcome that but at the other hand the internet might also be a way that isolates us from one another even further because it places these uh artificial barriers between people something really fascinating i've seen is that i have watched some people's social media presences and how they interact with people via social media as a medium and how they present themselves to the world and then i've met them in real life and they've been completely different people and it is sometimes surprising and sometimes really upsetting to see how the internet can allow someone to remake themselves into a different image that's for better or worse isn't them uh you know we don't have time to talk about this but another really great urban film that plays into this is Videodrome which I feel in a lot of ways really saw the internet coming with the new flesh and the the retina of the mind's eye and how one day we'll all give ourselves video names that will make the cathode rates who resonate and it's like well we've gotten there now but they're they're not called video names they're called twitter handles <laughs> uh and I really think that uh more more points i'm losing all the points tonight uh the director of director of cairo writer director of cairo like saw something coming about the potential ills and benefits of the internet and how it can be this either tool of connection or this tool of ultimate isolation through connection yeah okay so you've seen my face for the last two minutes as i try to grapple with if i want to dive into this or not but we're both members of horror Twitter, and this has for sure been a through line this past year like for a while um, of people that are just like well entrenched members of the horror community that seem like really cool through their just through this superficial interaction that we can have through 350 characters or less or whatever the number is. I don't know um and 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 then stuff's coming to light about them that we're like oh oh shit okay never mind bye i don't know the the superficialness of some of the connections you can make through the internet is jarring but also on the flip side of that coin 
I have met genuine lifelong friends through social media and the internet. So it's like yeah. a weird weapon that could be utilized so many different ways. It's weird too. I've seen it happen where I've like known people in real life and they've been really great seeming nice decent people but then i don't know if it's like the power going to their head but like they start to get a, a big social media presence and then it becomes this cudgel for them uh like a very good friend of mine another writer was talking to me about a a third writer and he says like i saw this guy completely transform because he got a couple of thousand followers on twitter and all of a sudden felt like he had to be you know the king of the world and, uh, you know, it's this this weird transformative thing, which also really brings to mind Cairo. Yeah. Um, is there, I don't actually have a thought here. Is there a connection we can make to urban horror here? <laughs> Not necessarily a connection to urban horror, but just an observation about Cairo and talking about that isolate, isolating effect. But uh, when we re-watched it uh earlier this year when i was telling you about during the freeze uh, my wife is actually the one who caught this a lot of the scenes are shot from outside the rooms where they're taking place and a lot of times you're in a room with people in a movie so you feel like you're there you're part of the conversation but like uh the, the greenhouse on the roof you're almost never actually in the greenhouse with the characters it's shot through the wall of the greenhouse and then there's other scenes that are shot through classroom windows. There's scenes that are shot through bedroom doors, but the movie works to literally isolate you from the characters in the film by placing you outside of their spaces. Oh. And it's almost like <laughs> they like become computer screens almost. So it's like you sitting at a computer screen watching them as opposed to face-to-face -face interaction. I'm thinking especially of the scene where the the one ghost shows her face to the character that is doomed from there on out. Um, even that, like it's shot and I'm I can see the doorway in the shot right now mm -hmm. happening from outside. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. Yeah, I can't take credit for that observation. That's hers. <laughs> well, cheers to her. Well done. Um and then the one last thing I want to hit on here with Cairo before we try to find some wrap-up point, um, the sound design in this movie is amazing because it hits one more part of urban horror that I think is important to recognize with the sound. Um, whenever you're in a city, um, be it Atlanta or New York or 42nd Street or you know wherever you are, when you're in a city with this much going on around you, there's just this constant white noise uh, taking place with horns blaring, with people talking, with just life happening around you. Um, and Cairo is the first movie I can think of. Um, I'm sure other movies have done this too, but it's the first one I can think of at least where that white noise is actually used effectively in the movie to unnerve you because through the whole movie you are hearing the sounds of the city even when the people are on their own there's kind of this static noise going on in the background and then every now and then when a ghost shows up it rips it all away and you are just left abandoned here and isolated with no sound and you immediately recognize how much of an influence the city has been having on you while you've been watching and all of those horns and everything else when they're removed from you your safety net is gone and mm -hmm. it taught me to 
freak the fuck out more than once. <laughs> I know just how quiet it gets by the end is so unsettling. Yeah. Um, but I guess there's there's maybe something kind of to our first point of constantly being surrounded by people and constantly being surrounded by these noises that like lets us feel like, okay, I'm safe. Life is still going on around me. Um, and you can kind of get into that mindset in a city, in an urban environment. Whereas if you go out to a rural environment, it's very quiet all the time. There are some bugs, maybe if you're lucky, um, but, but even those like aren't going to provide the, kind of the same comfort blanket of existence continuing around you. I think you're absolutely right. Cool. Anything else with urban horror that we haven't touched on yet? I think we've hit on a lot of really great stuff. Okay, then I would like to end by actually going back to that first thing we talked about. Um, typically, I end with a question for the guests of what do you have coming up in the pipeline other than Beasts of 42nd Street, which you should absolutely go read. Um, what else should we be on the lookout for you? You've mentioned it already, but can we go a little bit more in depth now? Yeah, it's called Necessary Death, and I co-authored this with a guy named Chris Grasso, who is the host of something called the Indie Spiritualist Podcast. And he came to me with this idea back in 2019, and it's something that we've been developing ever since and is finally coming out into the world this fall. It'll actually come out on Halloween. And it is an exploration of themes of spirituality and mental health and uh, sociology through the lens of horror films. Uh, that then also couples those observations with practical, real-world exercises, meditations that people can do to try and find some means of self-improvement. It's it's not it's difficult to explain, and I think that's why it took us a while to get this thing off the ground because it's not quite like anything else that's out there right now. But I think that horror fans, especially, and just movie fans in general, are really going to find unique and fun. Do you have one movie or story that you could maybe use as an example here to to get our minds going about what this could potentially like dive into? So like in the chapter on Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, first I look at Leatherface as a demonstration of Carl Jung's idea of the persona and ego death, which is what happens when going back to earlier talking about crafted personas when people find themselves unable to take off the mask of a crafted persona and become this thing that they're not and start living a lie. And then Chris in his section talks about if this has happened to you, if you find yourself becoming a, a phony or a false person or somebody that you don't recognize anymore, like walking yourself back from that brink. You wrote a book for my family. Um, I'm the big horror enthusiast here and my wife is a therapist. So all oh, cool. mind, I'm, I'm going to own this book and we are going to have you back on to talk about it. Um, yeah, be... likes to co-host sometimes when she has thoughts about something and she will have thoughts about this. That would be really cool to, and then potentially maybe bring Chris on as well, because I feel the reason that we work so well together and the reason that he was attracted to having me come on board this project, he had, he'd read Lady of the Inferno and really liked it. And then he realized uh, I've actually got a bachelor's in psychology from Sam Houston State University. And then he does a lot of work with drug and alcohol counseling and uh, meditation. And so we were able to bring those two things together, combined with our love of horror movies and create this this thing that we've got coming out. 
that I'm 200% serious about this. We're making this episode now. <laughs> Whether you want to or not, I'm dragging you back in. That'd be great. What, uh, when is this coming out? Uh, October 31st. Okay. I will be on the lookout for it. Um, and can you tell our listeners one more time just who you are, where they can connect with you if they want to get to know you more? I'm Preston Fossil, and you can find me on social media at, at Preston Fossil. My name will be in the uh, episode description. And you can uh, find my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And you can also purchase directly from my two publishers. Uh, my other four books are, wait, one, two, three. My first three books are available through Encyclopocalypse Publications. And uh, Beasts of 42nd Street is available directly from Cemetery Dance. Awesome. Uh, well, Preston, thank you again so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. This closes us out for the week. But please, before you go, do not forget to like or subscribe or uh, become the pulsing ghost of your streaming service of choice and stay spooky. Uh, we'll catch you next time.